you can put you can keep this i know you're taping right now yeah keep this on i put the i put it on everything okay i'm gonna go i'm gonna watch the movie this week and i'm gonna come back and i'm gonna say i still feel like soul man is the most progressive movie from the 1980s i just want to i want to know if you feel that way well let me hold on let me let me let me add a little on that (laughs) that was made by white people (laughs) (laughs) i'm steven and i'm brandy and welcome to the very first episode of bring receipts on this podcast brandy and i will argue our unpopular opinions about pop culture in today's episode we decide to go into the deep end of the pool We're debating Soul Man, the 1986 movie about a white student who performs blackface, allegedly, to go to Harvard Law School. I believe it's the most progressive film to come out of the 1980s. I completely disagree. Joining us to decide who is right is special guest judge Kwesi Chapman. So hold on to your tanning pills. It's time to bring receipts. There's nothing between Whitney and me. She just likes me because I'm black. I mean, because she thinks I'm black. I mean, when I got involved with her, I was really white on the inside, although I was black on the outside. But now a part of me is black on the inside, even though I'm white on the outside. I don't know. Maybe I'm sort of gray on the inside and the outside. Sarah, what I'm trying to say to you is, I'm actually white. You really outdid yourself here, Brandy. I mean, what a way to kick off this podcast. Why are you forcing me to debate about blackface? I I really don't think it's fair. Um, So, Wow. First of all, force is a strong word. So so we are going to debate whether or not this is blackface. But just just to give some backstory here, this movie, Soul Man, which dropped in 1986, and I'll talk about why that's important later. The plot is that Mark Watson, who's played by C. Thomas Howell, is a lazy but smart playboy from Southern California who gets admitted to Harvard, but his millionaire daddy won't pay the tuition. What's funny about that scene where Mark Watson's dad tells him he's not going to pay for tuition is that he does it while hanging from these gravity boots. It's actually the first time I've seen one of these, even though I've known about them for years, because as you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. When I was in high school, I actually worked at a sporting goods store in Beverly Hills, and I can't tell you how many rich white people would come in trying to buy gravity boots. And one, we didn't sell them, but two, I actually had no idea what these things were, so I tried to get them to describe it, and it never made any sense. I tried selling these people ankle weights instead. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, like, but did you, is there a part of you that wishes you had gravity boots just no i have no idea what it does i don't i don't understand what the <gasps> what the physical benefit of having gravity nope, not boots curious. is like I, I didn't get that scene at all in any event so like rich kid he got into harvard he's in la and his dad is like i'm using your tuition money for a timeshare which is not i feel like has not happened not never um, with rich white people, but whatever, that's the plot line. So he realizes that he's going to have to pay for it on his own. And he goes to try to get a loan, but because he doesn't really have a credit history, 
um, he can't get a loan from the bank. And as I think most of us of a certain age know at this point, of course, laws have been changed since then. So predatory student loans are much more regularly available. So this probably wouldn't have happened uh, today. But at that point, he he finds that there's a scholarship. So any Black students in the Los Angeles area who have gotten already gotten into Harvard could apply for this scholarship that would cover their tuition based on like, you know, needs and would um, give them extra money and a stipend for housing and things like that. So he applies for it. Um, he gets it. And then he then has to inhabit the body of a black person. So you make that sound like it's mystical, Brandy. (laughs) (laughs) You make it sound like he does a seance and like somehow gets into Harvard. I think you're you're beating around the bush here. Like, what does he do? He has to slip into the the, the beautiful <laughs> glistening skin. He slips into the waters of Lake Minnetonka and comes out. <laughs> okay, no. So he has to take these chemical tanning pills, which is also like the most 1980s white person thing ever. So he has to take these tanning pills, but he basically overdoses on the tanning pills so that he looks like he has black skin. I don't know how to tell you this, but you're not tan. You're black. Yeah. I exceeded the recommended dosage. Gordo, these babies are my ticket into Harvard Law School. I'm going on the Henry Q. Bouchard Memorial Scholarship for the best black applicant from Los Angeles, California. Mark, this is crazy. You can't do this. I already did it. Yeah, but Mark, you can't just take a scholarship away from some black person. How many people do you think from Los Angeles got accepted into Harvard this year? About four. And out of that four, how many do you think were black? One. Who knows? And that guy got a better deal from Stanford. So if you hadn't come along, the money would have just sat there. Exactly. But Mark, do you realize what this means? I mean, you're going to have to be a black person. No shit. Yeah, but for three years, Mark, three years, what's that going to be like? Gordo, it's going to be great. These are the 80s, man. It's the Cosby decade. America loves black people. There have been critiques from people that have said that he doesn't look realistically black. And I'm just going to say one, most most white people don't um, really know black people, so they probably wouldn't really know the difference anyway. And two, he low key looks like um, I think the do West from how to get away with murder. So like, I actually do feel like, like he's believable enough that nobody wants to ask questions without looking crazy. And in fact, by the time he gets to Harvard and he actually meets like the first probably real black person we meet in the film, <laughs> played by Ray Dong Chong, she is just like, Yo, come out to the Black Student Association meeting. It's coming up. I think maybe before that he meets, I can't remember if he meets um, the Barack Obama character earlier. I can't remember if the basketball scene happens before or after that, but yeah. So he meets a Black woman um, who is also um, a Harvard Law student. She invites him to the Black Law Student Association. And essentially... He goes through a series of incidents um, in which he is um, 
being treated a certain way because the outside world perceives him as being black. And he's trying to negotiate that while trying to, you know, build this relationship with this black love interest and Radon Chung. Um, he has a lot of, um, people that are that are kind of wanting to see him fail so there's like a trumpian landlord that's introduced that wants to find a way to like get him kicked out of the housing because he doesn't even want any black people in his house in his apartment complex so there's stuff around that um you know there's stuff about other white students that question whether or not he deserves to be at harvard so he has these different experiences and um he also has a black law professor which is played by james earl jones who he kind of initially thinks because he's a black professor and he's a black student that he's going to be held in gloves. But actually, James Earl Jones is like writing him and Sarah, um, the Ray Jong Chong black woman in, in the film harder than any of the other students. You'll get no special treatment from me, Mr. Watson. Do you hear me? No special treatment. And if that means you've got to work twice as hard as these little white shits, then you damn well better work twice as hard. That's essentially the plot. Him being sort of like Black Like Me, which is a famous book about a white journalist that spent some time in the South posing as a Black man and writing about his experiences. Also worth noting that at the time that the script was being written, Eddie Murphy was like on um, Saturday Night Live. And a couple of years before this movie comes out, he actually does a skit called White Like Me, where he's talking about the experience of being white in America and all the benefits that come from it. And I almost wondered, there's a little bit of a weird tip of the hat to that, because in the Saturday Night Live skit, Eddie Murphy goes to a bank to try to get a loan. And without credit history, he's actually given whatever it is that he wants, I think even more money than he asked for. Whereas in Soul Man, part of what kicks off this journey is this student attempting to go to a bank cold and get a loan and being turned down. So there's some interesting parallels like that, that I think were somewhat of a guide, I think, for the scriptwriter as she was developing this out. And I know that you did a little bit of research about the scriptwriter, Carol Black. So what'd you find there? Interesting career with Carol Black. So she has a pretty extensive career doing a lot of TV writing um, before Soul Man, which was, I think, her first like feature length film writing credit. Um, she wrote on a couple seasons of Growing Pains, uh, but she also went on to do some pretty extensive writing for The Wonder Years, um, was the creator for The Wonder Years, which was a significant show for me. It was very formative in my young, young adult life. Um, and she also went on to be the creator and writer for The Ellen Show, which, of course, was a very formative show for gay and queer representation in TV. Um, and then lastly, like most recently, she's been working on uh, a documentary. Uh, she did a documentary, which I'm not going to remember the name of it, but it had to do with like education um, and Western education being taught out um, internationally in kind of global South countries. And the, the movie, if I remember correctly, like what it posits is that if you wanted to change like ancient, ancient culture in a generation, the best way to do that is by changing the way that you educate children. So the whole film kind of goes into this thing about, um, you know, kind of white Western culture indoctrinating young children in a different style of education that undercuts like, you know, local 
um, local knowledge, you know, ancestral knowledge. And I can't remember the name of it at all. It's called like schooling the world, like the schooling the, the, world. the white yeah. man's last burden. That I disagree with that part of the title. There's many burdens that the white man still has to deal with. <laughs> but education is certainly one of them for sure. Um, so it's interesting that that she's this is the path for her going from blackface to critiques on education. I think the other interesting thing to note here is so when she writes the script, she's in her early 20s herself. And um, I think she just graduated from Swarthmore College, if I'm not mistaken. So experience at a sort of elite liberal arts college dealing with, you know, I think the type of characters that we meet in this book. So I think she's kind of fresh coming off of that college experience and interactions as she's writing the script for this film, which I actually think is part of what makes it so sharp in its critique, which I think we'll get to later. But I do want to talk about, you know, a couple pieces around this. So one, what was the reception of the film? And so we have Siskel and Ebert who gave this, I don't know, do you remember how many stars they gave it? Roger Ebert's review was just a one star. I don't know where they ultimately both landed together, but Roger Ebert was definitely was definitely not in on it. They both hated it, for sure. Yeah. And then you also have uh, Rita Kempley, who is a film critic at the Washington Post. I just want to read a little bit. <laughs> what she says because she ethers the hell out of this film and so and um carol black as well so she says howell meaning c thomas howell who plays the lead character a second string rob lowe has the title role in this embarrassing variation on black like me a half-witted collegiate farce guaranteed to offend just about everybody Blacks are stereotyped as they haven't been in decades, and whites are portrayed as Boston bigots and selfish preppies. But the really pathetic thing about this tired old knee jerker is not that it's racist, but that it's racist and doesn't even know it. And then she goes on to say Carol Black, writing her first and potentially last screenplay, seems to think she's the 80s answer to Harriet Beecher Stowe. A great white mother bestowing largest indiscriminately and in a juvenile comedy format at that. She makes jokes about basketball prowess and organ envy and then expects a tug at our heartstrings when the undercover hero learns that blacks face discrimination in the Ivy League. And I just want to say. She like she didn't like this film. Hated it. Yeah, that was basically. <laughs> That was basically her thing. But I want to I want to note this. So so in her in Kimpley's review, she says blacks are stereotyped as they haven't been in decades. It's worth noting that less than five years earlier, Columbia Pictures released the movie The Toy starring Richard Pryor and one of the kids from A Christmas Story. And there's like dumpster fire of a movie. Richard Pryor is literally purchased as a human toy for a rich little white boy who goes by the name Master Eric. At that time, Rita Kimpley said that the toy, quote, would improve with a little tinkering, 
still, it's surefire family fair. So if Richard Pryor had played this character in state, instead of C. Thomas Howell, it probably would have gotten I, yeah, a different, I different I reception. I don't know. But yeah, Rita Kempley, um, in her assessment that Black people were being stereotyped like they hadn't been, I think was wrong. There were also a lot of different movies releasing all sorts of stereotypes um, and storylines involving things like innocent suburban white kids ending up in dangerous urban situations involving hood Black people that are usually gang members, burglars, or prostitutes. So, I mean, you know, I think it's a bit of what I think is interesting, and, and I'll, I'll save a little bit of this for you know, the argument later is that there is this immediate response, this like knee jerk response from the white critic space that this movie is is so troubling and problematic and um, should not be accepted by mainstream audiences. And then on the other end of that, we also have critiques coming from a number of black people and filmmakers, most notably Spike Lee provides commentary. He does say that he has not seen the movie and there's no indicators that today he's seen the movie. But this idea of, you know, blackface or the experience of being black played for laughs in this type of film, he found deeply troubling. And and this is pre do the right thing in that era of Spike Lee, but certainly he's making his mark as a young filmmaker. And the other piece to this is that we we have the Hollywood NAACP coming out and saying that the plot revealed, quote, the racism and sexism of the film's creators. And UCLA's Black Student Alliance protested over what they called, quote, false statements about the economic realities of, of Blacks that Black students um, face at the school. And again, I think both of these critiques are coming out on the eve of the film being released. So not necessarily in, always in response to the film itself, but just, I think, based on the trailer, which did you want to play a clip of the trailer? Congratulations, Mr. Watson. Thank you, sir. I'll do my best. Some people yeah. do anything to get into Harvard. It's going to be great. These are the 80s, man. It's the Cosby decade. For Mark Watson, all it took was a little soul. <laughs> All it took was a little soul. And what did that soul bring them in the box office, Brandy? The soul brought them in the box office about $30 million on a $4.5 million budget. So this film was actually a major hit adjusted for inflation. Um, that'd be an $85 million in box office today. So it's not necessarily like an Avengers blockbuster, but given that it was made on a $4.5 million budget and made that much, it actually was a pretty significant movie. And actually um, that, that studio that released it, I believe new world pictures, um, this movie was so successful that it almost single-handedly helped save the studio for a couple more years. So apparently people were not quite as turned off by it as, as you know, Spike Lee or Rita Kempley. One of the things that I loved about this film, and there were a lot of things that I hated, which we'll get to in the argument later, but <laughs> they redid the song for the original song, Soul Man by Sam and Dave, which was written by Isaac Hayes, but redid the song for the 1980s, which I feel like we're going through like a generational version of that. Everything's getting remade nowadays, you know, and we're running, we're just running it back. 
this new version included Sam Moore from the original Sam and Dave and then Lou Reed. And it's a very interesting pairing. Like it, does, it doesn't like really gel and make sense because they're both like living on two different kinds of musical planes. What happened to Dave? I, he was still alive. I actually looked this up because I like, <laughs> I thought maybe he had like died or something. Nah, homeboy was still around. I don't know what happened. He didn't get the call. Like they were just like, no, we need we need a little bit of soul for this. <laughs> we just need Sam, Dave. We you're good. We don't, we don't need you. <laughs> I'm sure he still <laughs> got. Dave, I'm sure he still got paid. Like I hope so. Or maybe Dave was like, nah, I'm not gonna remake this movie for. I mean, I'm not gonna remake this song for a blackface movie. In any event, so so the film's a big hit. And I think before we go into the argument, it's, um, you know, our arguments about whether or not this is a progressive or offensive movie. I I think there's a couple of things that I I just want to set us up on in terms of the backstory. So this film drops in, um, I believe, October of 1986. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge like a a really important thing that happened in 1986. So that was actually the year that the greatest NFL team in the history of sports, um, the 85 Chicago Bears, won the Super Bowl handily and blessed us with one of the greatest um, NFL hip hop songs. This side of Deion Sanders must be the money in the form of the Super Bowl shuffle. Let me so just go ahead out. and note. No, hold on. Let me just go ahead and note. <laughs> this is like, you're you're going ahead and you're going to go ahead and expel your Chicago Bears capital on, on episode one of this podcast. Because yes, I know you're a, a lifelong struggling Chicago Bears fan. Ooh, so gonna, how's your get, football, how was your football team doing? I never claim that I'm like a football yeah, fan. Yeah, you can't be because you're from LA. Y'all ain't got no love. Exactly. I don't claim teams. it. I, cl- I claim what's mine, and that's the Dodgers and the Lakers, you know, the definition of success. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you're going to get it out of the way in episode one. That's cool. Fine. But if it comes up in a couple episodes, I'm just going to lightly, gently remind you, like we talked about that already. It's old news. 86 Bears, we get it. I got a lot of sports capital to expend on this podcast, Stephen. Don't you worry. So, anyway. This is a period in time. And in 1986, a lot of stuff happening. So we have the Challenger explosion. So a lot of kids traumatized by by literally seeing like a rocket explode in the air um, that had a teacher on it. We're in basically like Reagan's America, which I'll talk about a little more in depth later. This year, we have Out of Africa winning Best Picture, which again, I don't Anyway, that movie was not about black struggle in Africa, by the way. I believe that was about two white people um, falling in love in an era of colonialism. Um, Top Gun, which is actually, I believe, one of the first movies that was a direct collaboration between the military and Hollywood behind the scenes as a form of military propaganda, is the highest grossing film of the year. We have going on Hands Across America. And for those that have seen the movie Us, where there's, you know, that Um, There's a plot line in there about hands across America happening, which is an attempt for people across the country to hold hands from the West Coast to the East Coast to display solidarity. So you have a lot of different dynamics playing out in the country. You have these themes of 
racial solidarity. Um, we hear in the trailer this comment about we're in Cosby's America. Everybody loves Black people. And I think you're in this moment in time, you know, coming off of the civil rights movement of the 60s and that volatile time and entering into the 70s, you have this period of like what's called the Black exploitation movement and a lot of Black cinema being made. That's, I think, for the most part, actually being made for Black people, but it's certainly centering a lot of storylines that aren't necessarily these kind of like pristine respectability politics storylines. And so the NAACP and other groups are lobbying against the black exploitation era. And by the time we get to the mid 80s, it's dying out and you have the Cosby era um, in full swing. And I think you have a lot of people really trying to show what blackness is to the white gaze. So we had a few notable actors like in this film including Ray Dong Chong um, and C. Thomas Howell, who are the two kind of main stars of the film. Uh, Ray Dong Chong, obviously, of some fame because of her lineage. So, you know, her father's Tommy Chong of the Cheech and Chong uh, franchise. And she had a pretty interesting kind of acting career. Um, I remember her from Commando, you know, where she was acting alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then uh, C. Thomas Howell, of course, like comes to us, you know, most famously from The Outsiders. And it's interesting to think about like the rest of their IMDb when you look at it, like it's somewhat limited in terms of, you know, their their success post Soul Man, even though the film itself was like, you know, commercially successful. C. Thomas Howell like went on to do a lot of bit parts in multiple films and TV shows. Ray Dong Chong um, had done like I think between Soul Man, The Color Purple, and Commando. Like those were probably the peak of you know her career, and they all happened around the same kind of cluster of time in the eighties. But beyond that, like her career seems like to have just sputtered out. There were some other kind of notable actors in this film, including Julia Lewis Dreyfus, who. I obviously most folks would know her from her time at Seinfeld, which I didn't really watch Seinfeld, but I did watch Veep and I loved Veep. And and then Melora Hardin, who like was a deep cut for this film. I, like I love Melora Hardin from her her role as Jan in The Office. So I was like super surprised. And, and Melora Hardin plays like the super problematic white woman who could feel 400 years of oppression in every single thrust. I could really feel. 400 years of oppression and anger in every pelvic thrust. <sighs> and then we also had Leslie Nielsen, of course, who played the, the racist landlord. And I remember watching a lot of Leslie Nielsen movies, thanks to, to my family who like, we didn't understand English, but we understood slapstick comedy. So like a lot of the slapstick comedy movies were the stuff that we watched. Yes. So, Airplane, still... One of my favorite movies. And and of course, James Earl Jones, who actually does go on to have a pretty big career. I mean, going into this, he's obviously a known character actor and is um, known by some as the voice of Darth Vader. I actually think that people understood him to be that much later on in the game. But he goes on after this to be in like Field of Dreams, like a number of films. So he's actually kind of at the beginning of his Hollywood breakthrough moment. So C. Thomas Howell is coming out in a time of like an onslaught of, I think this is like peak white 
boy teen actor of a certain age era. So this is the time that you have the Brat Pack happening. You have the Corys popping off. Got like Robert Downey Jr., you know, James Spader. So C. Thomas Howell has actually a lot of competition at this time. And I'm not prepared to say he's a bad actor, but I'm not necessarily prepared to say that I think he's a, a James Spader. So well, do you do you agree with Rita Kempley that he's a second string Rob Lowe? Uh, I, I like him more than Rob Lowe. Of course, I was not a teenager at this time, so I don't know what my choice would have been then. But I always I've always found Rob Lowe to be a bit off putting. And maybe it's because by the time I knew who he was, I also knew that he done that like sex tape with 17 year old girls and whatnot. But in any event, I feel like in the end, when he goes back to being white, like he has a glow up, like how he looks in the beginning of the film versus how he looks in the end when he's like got that Ray Dong Chang glow up happening. I actually, I actually rate that look, but long story short, I'm not, is that tanning pill afterglow? So (laughs) it's a tanning pill afterglow. It's like when it hasn't completely worn off. So he still has swarthiness, So I'm not fully prepared to say that I think that Soul Man ruined his career necessarily, as opposed to the fact that he maybe just had a lot of competition and sort of missed out on maybe certain roles that could have been game changers for him. Radong Chang, I think, is also interesting because in the 1980s, even though I was actually surprised by her IMDb page and how lean it kind of was, because I recall her and... um, What is Denise from the Cosby shows? Um, Lisa Bonet. Lisa Bonet. But like her and Ray Dong Chong were kind of like the black 80s It's Girls, which is fascinating in and of itself because they're both biracial. Like Ray Dong Chong is Asian and black. Um, Lisa Bonet, I believe, is, is white, Jewish and black. But like they're the ones that are kind of held up. And you see Ray Dong Chong in the movies like Beach Street and others kind of p- playing the girl that guys have to become better people to earn, which is actually a similar role of what she's playing in here. He has to become a better man in order to earn her love. But then she does, like you said, she does kind of like peter out by the end of the 80s. And I'm in some her, some of her later comments, she I think she sort of seems to think I don't want to put words in her mouth, but the indicators are sort of that there is this belief that soul man and, you know, harmed their careers in some ways. But again, I'm not 100 percent sure. If I would say that I I know that to be true. Okay, Brandy. So we just talked about the history of the film. We talked about the history of the moment. And we're about to get into the argument. What are you trying to say about this film? So I am arguing that this is the most progressive movie to come out of the 1980s with parentheses made by white people. And I actually am almost inclined to say that I think that it's the most progressive with a period on it, but I just don't want people coming at me with some movie that I didn't remember. So I'm going to, I'm going to say I'm comfortable saying by white people. I'm going to argue the counter and all I'm going to say right now is good luck. I don't need luck. When you have facts, when you have receipts, when you have heart, you don't need luck, my friend. You just need 400 years of, of oppression in every, single, every single period in this next section. You're going to feel me breaking the chains of that oppression.
are back with special guest for our program, Quasi Chapin. <laughs> Did I get that right? <laughs> you got it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <there> is. <laughs> so Quasi is our special guest judge. Um, Quasi, I've known for years. Uh, we worked together at an organization called Color of Change, um, the largest online racial justice organization in the country with 7 million members. Um, he is the former senior political director there. Um, in his tenure, his team led efforts to activate millions of voters, of Black voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida for the 2020 general election and in Georgia for the general and runoff election. So if you ever see Kwesi in these streets, you need to thank him, please. He's also a DJ content creator, taste maker. He is one of like three black people I've ever met in my life that loves the show Seinfeld. And the other two people are his friends. Quasi's qualifications for being a judge is that he is black. He knows white people. He was alive in the 80s. And he is also my friend and therefore obligated to side with me no matter what. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Quasi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And thank you for that intro. And just just let the viewers and listeners know, I am will be unbiased in my ju- judgment. I take my judge role very serious. So Stephen, just let you know that. <laughs> I have I have complete faith in you. You know, as a fellow DJ, I have complete faith that we can be impartial. I mean, I hadn't, honestly, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have invited you, but it's fine. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so, Kwesi, tell me, I know we know each other from Color of Change. We both have moved on. T- talk to me a little bit about what you are up to these days. That's a great question. Uh, right now, I am up to to the same mischief I was doing at Color Change. Uh, still going to be in the progressive district attorney world, um, getting the good ones elected. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I am still electing cops. <laughs> so electing cops and the good ones, quote unquote, and uh, working on a couple of projects. I'll be doing some social impact with my free time. You know, we're not working a, you know, trying to save America with the 2020 elections. <laughs> uh, not using some free time to work on some social impact projects that I'll hopefully be kicking up pretty soon. Cool. So, I mean, well, I want to, pull on that a little bit before we transition. So this movie actually does take place at a law school. I went to law school. I know from experience, there are a lot of horrible people there and a lot of them go on to become district attorneys. So, you know, I think because of the ways in which Black people interact with the criminal justice system and the legal system, which actually is touched upon on this movie, you know, there is a hesitation. I know for me, I wasn't trying to be a DA when I came out of law school. So talk to me a little bit about why you think it is so important to do this work around electing progressive DAs. Yeah, you can you can want to change the system as much as you want. But literally, the district attorney is a just look at George Floyd. OK, Mike Freeman, the district attorney of Minneapolis, uh, proves as a reason is like, 
oh, I'm not going to get Derek Chabon arrested. I don't see any charges. That's the DA. That's literally the district attorney. So uh, Mike Freeman, shout out to him being the, the best asshole and worst <laughs> DA in the, in the country in terms of be, being able to show like, all right, here's what happens when you have someone in power and what happens when they're happen to be, you know, not in the community or doesn't get, you know, criminal justice reform and they can actually impact deciding on who the charge and not the charge. In fact, uh, Solman gives a perfect example of that, of how uh, the main character just kind of gets, gets arrested. If he was really Black, he'd have been facing the real charges <laughs> um, and not just walk away. <laughs> he'd have been in that jail for a while. <laughs> and not he really missed his finals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair point. Fair point. I, I mean, I, I do think that's actually important. And we'll get to that a little more um, in terms of when people go to law school um, and then they go out into the world and they accumulate a certain amount of power, that ability to see the humanity in, in the people that they're encountering, whether that's in the legal system, in the criminal justice system, whether that's in contracts, whether that's anywhere, you do worry about that experience of having a lawyer that, you know, only sees your color and, and what they believe to be true of you as a person. So that, that's another reason why I think this movie is so ahead of its time. But before we get to my arguments, I we, we just want to ask you a couple of questions. So were you familiar with Soul Man before we invited you on this podcast? Actually, yes. I have seen Soul Man a couple of times. And you went back. You, you went back for another taste. And I, oh, I, I, I got me two scoops of that this week. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and did you like, did you like it before or, or, or had you thought anything about it before we asked you to be on this podcast? I had many thoughts about Soul Man. You know, when I was a kid watching this movie, I actually liked it. Right. Like, oh, wow. He's, you know, and then, then you but then you realize, like, the amount of blackface <laughs> that goes on in the movie. <laughs> it was like, ah! <laughs> what is that? How is that really, uh, you know, good for folks? Um, but I actually, I actually did like the movie. And even this week, we were watching it. I, was, I laughed at some parts. <laughs> it's still good. It's still good. It's still good. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about Radon Chong? What was your? Do you remember her from the '80s? I know we're like on the younger end, but. I do remember Radon Chop in the 80s and listening to the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, she was the it girl uh, for, the, for the 80s. What other movie was she in? Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, the cute, attractive, you know, typical light-skinned Black woman, maybe a multiracial thing. And then, but yeah, I remember y'all, y'all asked the question, what happened? Halle Berry happened. That's what happened, right? So you're saying another <laughs> another multiracial person I was <laughs> There could only be one. This is the, this is Hollywood 80s. What are you talking about? You think they're gonna have multiple black folks running around? Well, there were because you had you had Lisa Bonet. Now you did have Lisa Bonet and Ray Dong Chang at the mm-hmm. they were running around the same mm-hmm. time. And that's okay too. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um okay. So here we go. I'm gonna make 
three key arguments. I could make more, but I don't want to overwhelm people with my genius. So I've narrowed it down to three key arguments that I'm going to make for why I think that Soul Man was ahead of its time in the most progressive movie of the 1980s made by white people. So the first point that I think is crucial for us to get into here is whether or not this is even blackface. Because I think we, we operated off of a lot of assumptions that this is blackface. You know, we keep making jokes about it. That was a lot of the critique at the time. But I think it is important for us to really examine, does this actually meet the smell test as far as this being blackface? So just to drop on folks a little bit of historical knowledge. So historically, portrayal of blackface tends to be when people darken their skin with something like shoe polish, grease paint, or burnt cork, um, paint on enlarged lips or other exaggerated features, and is steeped in centuries of racism. It had been around, I, I didn't um, look up the date for when it started, but but certainly seemed to have a surge in popularity post-Civil War and going into Jim Crow America. Uh, and so you see these like traveling theater acts and musical acts of white people essentially making money off of imitating a depiction of Blackness that they were invested in in order to maintain a system of white supremacy. Let me put it like that. It peaked in popularity in a time in the United States when demands for civil rights by recently emancipated people tr triggered a certain amount of racial hostility. And it's still used in different ways, shapes, and forms, which we'll talk about. But it, it certainly is, um, I would say, a certain amount of assertion of power, control, and degradation. And this is also something that's been um, said by David Leonard, a professor of comparative ethnic studies and American studies at Washington State University. He says, not only is it an assertion of power and control, but quote, it allows a society to routinely and historically imagine African-Americans as not fully human. It serves to rationalize violence and Jim Crow segregation. And I'd like to play a clip of some historical blackface. I don't know if Stephen, do we just want to mark that or do you want to play it now so Quasi can hear it? What's the matter with you boys shooting up that man's hen house? I'll shoot any chicken trying to follow me home. Well, why don't you get a job and go to work? No, almost had me a job this morning. Where? I went down to the post office and said that man couldn't let me have one of them jobs as a letter total. No, Cotton, you mean a mail carrier. And the man said, boy, you give me a situation, you'd have to put me through a simple self-examination. No, stupid. You mean a civil service examination. So, um, that was Cotton and Chick Watts. We may have to bleep this out, but fuck these people. Um, they are, we could put a bleep over that, but like, fuck these people. But these these are folks that were doing comedy shows. Um, Cotton Watts performed blackface well into the 1960s at various supper clubs. And again, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about historical blackface. And I, I, and I think that there's two pieces that are key here. First, aesthetic and vocal. So... If you're if you were to watch the clip, you'll see Cotton is donning a leopard suit, uh, making exaggerated movements. Uh, he's wearing a wig, a black face paint, the large white painted lip. Um, you can hear in the vocal that he's speaking in this kind of slow and drawn out Southern drawl. You can tell it's a white man, or at least I feel like I can. But he, he, I can also tell that he's trying to affect 
a, a black scent. So that that's the first key to historical blackface, that the aesthetic. Second is dehumanization. So when you look at it again, it, it is quite clearly a white man giving an exaggerated depiction of what he thinks or wants people to believe that Black people are, specifically Black men. The clip is all about making Black people seem lazy, money-hungry, intellectually inferior, unable to string together English words. And in fact, his wife, Chick, you know, is repeatedly calling him stupid in the clip. So that's, that's historical Blackface. I would submit that in Soul Man, that is not actually what we're seeing take place. For the majority of the movie, Mark Watson, the lead character, does not in any way affect a Black scent. He doesn't change a lot about his style of dress. There's a few notable instances where he does. So um, in one instance, he runs into his friends from California and he knows that if his friends hear his voice, they might recognize him. So he pretends to be hearing and visually impaired. And there's this awkward moment where he's clearly doing this like bad Stevie Wonder impression um, that's a little bit questionable. And then I think there's another instance where, again, he's trying to obscure his identity. So he does dip into um, some black scent. But again, like other than those instances where he's explicitly trying to convince white people that he is not, you know, the Mark Watson that they know. Other than those moments, he pretty much remains his same, like, corny self with his same, like, normal accent. He doesn't add anything onto his nose. He doesn't, like, wear black lipstick or, or make any of his facial features look different. Um, so that that aesthetic is not quite the same. It's also, he also doesn't paint his skin every day. He is using tanning pills to make his skin darker. The other time where he does dip into like a little bit of, of what I would say like blackface play is when he goes to the Black Law Student Association meeting. And um, his friend who I refer to as future Chuck Schumer, um, he he goes to his friend and he's like, this girl that I like invited me to this Black Law Student Association meeting. What is that? And his friend Chuck Schumer says that he heard that the group is militant. So... In order to like fit in, uh, Mark dresses up in basically like Black Panther attire. The theme song to Shaft is playing. He goes to this meeting. And as soon as he walks in, he actually sees um, what I'm convinced is a Barack Obama character. Like, I really think when they were filming this on campus, they were walking around the Harvard Law School. I swear, I feel like they saw Barack Obama. And I feel like this character is supposed to be him. I'm convinced of it. But he sees him, he sees Sarah, his love interest, and then a bunch of like black yuppies staring back at him confused. So in this instance, the joke is played to make him look like a fool because he's trying to reflect what he thinks he should be as a black man trying to get the girl and is promptly made to look stupid. Also, he's at Harvard. He's trying to get an A in class. So again, I would say that this historical use of blackface and, and the intentions and purposes and the way it's played out does not apply here. I would say if you want to see, you know, examples, you, you should look at Jimmy Kimmel doing Karl Malone. You know, China recently came under fire for blackface performers at a national New Year's Eve celebration. There's Zwartepiet in Amsterdam, um, which is like this like little black Santa's helper that's supposed to be like a, a Santa slave that they do every year and they swear it's not blackface, but I've been there and it definitely is. So, so there's a lot of examples of rampant use of blackface that have extended into the modern era. 
So that's historical blackface. Where perhaps it could get a little fuzzy is when we talk about modern iterations of what is known as digital blackface. And so digital blackface is a term that originated with Dr. Joshua Lumpkin Green. Green defines digital blackface as, quote, a term by which to frame the current appropriation of the Black masculine body. Dr. Laura Michelle Jackson expands on this term um, in her book, White Negroes, and through her academic and pop cultural work on cultural appropriation. Jackson discusses digital blackface broadly, respective of gender identity, and calls it, quote, the act of inhabiting a Black persona, employing digital technology to co-opt a perceived cachet or Black cool, and it involves a play acting of Blackness in a minstrel-like fashion. Um, examples that she talks about are the use of gifts, um, and particularly like Black people as gifts um, to show exaggerated emotion online, um, pretending to be a Black person online to shut down critiques of racism. An example of this being when folk singer Annie DeFranco was holding songwriting retreats at plantations and her Black friends were like, the hell wrong with you, Annie DeFranco. Um, her some of her white fans were caught creating profiles online that were supposed to be black women, and were using those profiles to say, "As a black woman, I don't mind that Annie DeFranco hosts events on plantations." And just a pro tip for people online: if you ever see a comment from somebody that starts off with "as a black person," I guarantee you that ain't a black person. But just that's <laughs> that to the side. So, but again, I would say you don't actually see that uh, in this movie. So Mark, as the lead character, is actually grappling with how to respond to a lot of different forms of racism. He's not trying to deny it, erase it. He encounters a range of racism that goes from explicit to more subtle. And through that process, I would say he becomes even more grounded in his humanity and is able to see the humanity of Black people in a way that his liberal Chuck Schumer friend or the white girl in there that's obsessed with dating men of color could never. Two more quick arguments that I'll throw in. So two, the character is not supposed to be a hero initially. Like he, he doesn't have integrity. You're not supposed to root for him. So the way I figure it, we merge a few corporations. When the antitrust suits come up, we handle the defense. We make our first mill at 30. Tired of the islands at 35. So he's a scumbag. He is on par with Mark Zuckerberg or some other people like that. He's trying to get and make money. And then he has to go on this hero's journey to redemption, which is a quite commonly used trope. Um, we've seen that with Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. We've seen that with Johnny and Cobra Kai. And what is being introduced in this film, I think, is uh, this important distinction between empathy and sympathy in the human condition. I would say that in the movie, his friend Chuck Schum Schumer and others, I can't remember the guy's name. And so he's not actually Chuck Schumer. So please, Chuck Schumer, don't sue me for saying this, but he kind of is like him. Um, he says he wants to like run for office and stuff, but like he has sympathy for the plight of black people. Um, he can he can see instances of racism playing out. He's the one that's supposed to in some ways be the sort of moral consciousness of Mark, um, challenging Mark as he goes down this journey of uh, pretending to be black. But when the chips are down, there, there's like multiple instances throughout the movie where racism is happening and his friend doesn't 
call it out. And it's sort of left up to Mark, who's inhabiting this Black body, to go back and forth with, do I speak out? Do I say something about this? Or do I keep it moving forward? Which is actually an experience that I think a lot of um, people of color, people from marginalized groups face all the time. Like, do I smash on this person? Or do I act like it's cool? Because I know if I smash, I'm going to be the angry one. I'm going to look crazy. And uh, all of our white allies who want to say something on Twitter and have hashtag Black Lives Matter in our Twitter feed don't actually step up and say things when the chips are down. And so I think that exploration between sympathy, which has boundaries and an empathy that Mark has to get to in order to become a better man at the end, I think is is actually a fascinating piece about this. And I don't know, Stephen, if you have queued up the clip at the end where he's talking with James Earl Jones, but I would like to play that clip. You must have learned a great deal more than you bargained for through this experience, Mr. Watson. Yes, sir. A Harvard Law graduate can do a great many things, make a lot of money, teach, become a senator, a judge. A Harvard Law graduate has power, Mr. Watson. I hope that I teach my students to use that power responsibly, even generously. But you've learned something that I can't teach them. You've learned what it feels like to be black. No, sir. Beg your pardon? I don't really know what it feels like, sir. If I didn't like it, I could always get out. It's not the same, sir. You've learned a great deal more than I thought. You won't press charges. You can stay. So so I actually think that's that's the core piece here. And and that's also what I'm talking about when I'm talking about sympathy versus empathy. So he could have understood more through having black friends, the the black experience enough to have a certain amount of sympathies. But until he faces that prospect of like going to jail and having certain experiences or being a black man dating, you know, a white woman, which we'll get to in a little bit and and having the reactions from her family that he has, then he can't actually begin to know what that experience is like. But even in knowing that as a touch point for a school year or however long he inhabits it, he still walks away with an awareness that even then he doesn't fully know the full range of experience. And to me, earlier we talked about Carol Black um, and and her work and her documentary films later on. And I think those are actually a continuation of this thought that she's beginning to articulate in Soul Man. And, and I think she's suggesting here that that white people never truly know about that life. And that for white people, the journey has to be about breaking breaking that sympathy to empathy boundary and moving away from centering the experience of whiteness as a default. I think that's a little bit what she's talking about um, when she does her documentary about westernized education that's centered around um, whiteness. And I think she's playing with that a little bit here through the use of satire in a way that because of how people responded to that perception of blackface never really quite gets through. So that's that's the second reason why I think this is a little more progressive. And then the final point I'll make is that, you know, a lot of the critique, particularly from the black community about this movie, was about how it how it trafficked in stereotypes around black people. Um, I think one of the clips that widely got circulated was this clip of Mark Watson, lead character, he's dating this white woman that's like obsessed with 
dating people of color, starts to date him as a Black man. She is the daughter of the Donald Trump real estate figure that we mentioned earlier. And so she takes uh, Mark Watson home, this like guess who's coming to dinner moment. And as he's meeting the father, the mother, and her little brother, each of them have a fantasy of what they think he's like. And so here's a clip of the mother reacting or, or the fantasy that pops up into her head around Mark Watson. All my life, I've only been able to think about one thing, white women. And now, at last, I'm going to have one. <laughs> the best part about the best part about that clip is, is the gasp at the end with the mom. Yeah, that is definitely a bodice ripping. In, in case you're wondering what that was. <laughs> Uh, okay this clip is wild and and there's and so it's like in her head she's seen this like black man that wants to like ravish this white woman and and she's into that the father is seeing him um dressed like a pimp eating watermelon trying to like knock up his white daughter and then the son at that time prince is huge and, and all over mtv so when he looks at him he sees this like cool rock and roll prince figure. Um, and so all of them are projecting onto him their belief in what being Black is. And meanwhile, he's just like this like corny dude sitting there not actually embodying any of those things. And I think that speaks to what I think is actually the broader point of this film. It is actually not about um, Black people and who Black people are. It's about how white people respond to Black people. And I think it's offering this thesis that even though we are past the civil rights movement, and even though white people are operating under this assumption that racism is over because it doesn't look like that type of blackface minstrelsy that we saw in the clip that that we played earlier, it's still there. It's still existing in the ways in which Black people are, are fundamentally treated. It doesn't matter that you're this Black kid at Harvard that comes from this quote-unquote good family. When you sit at Donald Trump's table and try to marry his daughter, at the end of the day, he's still going to see you as a watermelon-eating pimp. And I, I, I think that is a really interesting and compelling point. And then I also want to pick apart for this last piece, um, the Black people in it. The actual Black characters themselves, Sarah, um, the Barack Obama character, they actually play into the respectability politics that that do inform the type of movies at that time. And so I think people look at the synopsis and say, Black woman, single mother, and then they project all of this stuff onto what that's supposed to mean about her. But in the movie, it's actually said very clearly, she got married young and she got divorced and she's a single mother sharing custody. So it's not this like, you know, single welfare queen trope that that's being floated around in Reagan's America at that time. It's like she's responsible. She's staying with her grandparents in Boston. She's getting letters from her father in California. So they go out of their way to show that she actually is, you know, part of this like respectability mold and that she's like having to push through and, you know, work jobs and do all of this other stuff um, to keep all of the balls in the air. But it, it's it's actually almost, I would say my critique of it would actually be that it almost tries too hard to show Black people as perfect, um, juxtaposed to the white perception or the white gaze of um, Black people and Blackness. And so, I, again, I could... 
I could smash really hard. I have about four or five more um, points in my PowerPoint that I could make today. But I feel like I've put together a compelling enough case that I'm going to rest my case, Stephen. Wow. I mean, what can I say? Wow. I mean, interesting points. Uh, you know, I think some very strong points. Uh, so I'm going to couch mine. I'll try. I'll get to the blackface at the very end. That'll be my last argument because we have to address that. But I've got, I've got four arguments. The first is that the ends where the film lands, the lesson for Mark Watson of that transition from sympathy to empathy, the ends don't justify the means. And there's two different ways I think about this. One is in order for white people to learn the lesson that even in Cosby's America, racism still exists, like is done in such a harmful way. Like it's an entire film where the lead character is in blackface for most of the film. In the film itself, like if we play within the plot of the film, in order for Mark Watson to learn that lesson, he he causes some significant harm. Like he takes a scholarship away from a black woman. And I think that to me is where I have a harder time getting to the point of redemption with this character and where things end up. Because I think that actually has parallels to our real life today where we've seen like white people you know, taking on and appropriating either blackface or other cultures and taking opportunities away from other people. You know, most famously, I think recently in this past year, uh, Jessica Krug, who is a white woman from the Midwest who projected that she was uh, an Afro-Latina from Puerto Rico, you know, or Natasha Ora Bannon, who was is an attorney over at Latino Justice, um, who was for most of her lifetime pretending to be, either be Colombian or Puerto Rican whenever it suited her. And like, did take opportunities away from other Latina lawyers. Like, you know, she sat on boards that were just exclusively meant for Latinas, you know. And and I think that's the thing about what Mark Watson does in this film that is that is hard for me to to redeem, even though I'll get to the end point where he lands and, and what he decides to do. But I, I think that's hard for me that in order to land this lesson for white people, um, you had to have committed so much harm along the way. And I, and I don't think the ends justify the means. The second is, you know, I took a quick look to understand if this was a science fiction film. Um, you know, and I looked on the Wikipedia page and it for sure is listed as a comedy and it was intended for teens. And the reason I bring that up is because this film does not adhere to the laws of physics on earth, Brandy, and in a couple of different ways. First of all, the reaction of Professor Banks and Sarah Walker at the end, just yada yada that like this dude who they thought was like black is actually white. They just kind of like forgave it. They were just like, okay, you know, I mean, Sarah Walker put up the strongest fight, but even she changed her mind. Like the moment that like Mark Watson punched the white, you know, the racist white dude in the, in the cafeteria. I don't, I don't know how you get to a place where you're like, that's cool. And, and then Professor Banks, the, the last part of the clip that we played is him literally saying, okay, you can stay. Like, it's all good. I, that, that does not conform to the, the laws of reality here on earth. And I don't think that that is a, a reaction that, that a black person who finds out that a person 
you know, is pretending to be black and is actually white. I don't see that being the reaction that they would take. That that doesn't conform for me. Second, I think that going from like ignorant to anti-racist in the span of five months by going to law school to me is just impossible. Like because he came from an institution that was equally like racist, like he was going to UCLA. It had its own diversity problems. It had its, its own problems with black representation. And to all of a sudden go to Harvard and make that kind of leap, you know, very quickly. I, I just don't see that happening because, again, it would take us being in a different universe in which time actually functioned differently. I could see that happening like in a multiverse, but this isn't the latest phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And therefore, I feel like this film and where it sits just does not adhere to reality. The other point I'll make um, is that, you know, you're making the argument that this is the most progressive film in the 1980s. Well, let me throw a handful of films that I would throw into the mix. Made by white people, made by white people, just to clarify. I got you. I got you. Made by white people. Here's some films to consider in addition. If you're looking for uh, a, a film that challenges patriarchy, we can throw out Alien, you know, by Ridley Scott. If you're looking for a film that's anti-capitalist, let's throw out Robocop, which I think is more progressive than Soul Man. Um, if you're looking for a film that actually tackles race, there is a film called White Dog about a black dog trainer who is trying to untrain a white dog from attacking black people. Th this film, I think, goes into it. And, and I think that would have been a better pick for this subject than, uh, than Soul Man. And lastly, an even more anti-racist movie, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. The difference between the boogeyman and people's minds and dreams versus the reality, I think that's a better argument for this. Um, let's tackle Blackface really quickly. This film's overall runtime was an hour and 41 minutes. That's 101 minutes. Uh, Mark Watson was white for 17 minutes of that. And he was in Blackface for... Uh, from about minute 17 to about an hour and a half into the film. That's a long time to be in blackface. And I will say like the basketball scene to me is the most obvious place where this happens because one, the basketball scene is too long. And if you take a close enough look by his shorts, like down by the, his short shorts, which were typical of the 1980s, you'll see there's like a little fade going on where it goes, it becomes really white, just above, just above the basketball shorts. He was clearly in blackface. At the end of the day, we're talking about a film in which a white character is in blackface for over an hour. And I don't know how you can argue against that. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Oh my God. First of all, that you were looking that closely at a shorts line is weird to me. Um, but like, but I guess there's that's part of the line between the storyline of the movie and what they actually had to do to accomplish the movie. So did he sit in makeup in a way that probably it more closely resembles a certain amount of blackface, sure. At least a million dollars in the $4 million budget of this movie was just on the makeup itself. I, I doubt I it. Like I doubt it because it wasn't that good. But like, I think that, that, but as far as the plot point goes, he's taking tanning pills. And then, and, and he actually does have sex with a white woman who 
you know, sees his and presumably sees his entire body and sees it as black. I did have questions that we won't get into for this, uh, the logistics of what that would look like, but (laughs) (laughs) but okay, fair enough. So, so you made some interesting points, Stephen Rendero. So I'll give you that. Um, I am going to pull the black card and say that you saying what you think black people are going to do. A little bit of weird, weird flex. Fair enough. And I'm also going to point out that Rachel Dolezal, as we speak, has a thriving hair braiding business. And I guarantee you her clientele is overwhelmingly black. So as far as the depths of of the levels of what black people are willing to forgive, you would be surprised. Um, (laughs) Like also... I think in your point about the white dog movie, the racist white dog, I I actually think that reinforces my point, which is that I think art has to be jarring to be changing. I think sometimes when people are too afraid to push the envelope, what ends up happening is that there's either so much nuance that the underlying message gets lost or it's so watered down um, that we aren't confronted with um, what's happening in a movie in a way that makes us reassess our thinking. So what I think when you're talking about that racist white dog and that movie, like you're watching it and you're like, wow, that is really messed up. But I I do think that, again, part of what I think is important about this movie as a comedy um, to land is that it's supposed to have a shock value, like you're supposed to feel uncomfortable with it. And I think the response from the critic community in particular speaks to that. I think when you look at Rita Kempley's review and she talks about how offensive it is to Boston Brahmins and and all of this, or like Boston, I forget how she frames it, Boston Preppies. She's revealing herself. She's revealing the fact that she's actually more uncomfortable with how white people are being depicted in this movie. And they pivot to this idea that blackface is so offensive and that's why they don't like it. But really, I think the discomfort is all of the displays of white racism, whether it's the white woman anthropology student that's constantly looking for dick of color. Um, in the in the last part of the movie, she shows up with a Native American man. Um, you know, that is a specific archetype of a type of, of racism we experience in our society that it that that veers from the type of KKK racism that we normally see in movies. When you see um, the little brother, um, you know, obsessed with prints and projecting onto to this. A, you know, black man that he doesn't know all of this cool and cachet, even in that basketball scene. Um, part of what happens in that scene is that the, the the two white teams are fighting over Mark because they see he's black and they assume he knows how to play basketball. And he's not even tall. Like he, I don't know how tall C. Thomas Howell is in, in real life, but he's not necessarily read as a basketball player from any other standpoint other than the fact that he's being perceived as Black. And so the fact that they fight over him in that way, again, that reveals a certain amount of whiteness that's not rooted in, in our traditional understanding of racism as depicted in, in, in media, but this other type of this assumption of, quote, cachet that people try to latch on to. Um, and then you have, again, the Donald Trump figure, um, So again, the way that it explores all the different types of white anxiety and reaction to Blackness in this very like shocking way that makes you like look at it um, for that however long you documented that he was in um, the Black skin, I think is actually 
part of why it resonates. Like, I guarantee you that most people who look at Nightmare on Elm Street or look at like a number of the movies that you named would not peg those as movies about race or capitalism or other things. That tapes a certain amount of depth of thought that frankly, most people don't have, especially not when they're going to watch the movies. So does it matter if Nightmare on M Street is about racism or whatever, whatever category? box you checked you said it was about if nobody that watches that movie gets it or understands or takes away that message how does that in any way change society or or force a conversation so yeah those would be like some of the things that that I would offer here and then also if we're able to go back and pull the clip of uh, Mark Watson in the end when he says all of the stuff that he's going to do all the you know restorative justice that he's going to do to make up for that semester that he was in blackface. That's the other thing here from a timeline perspective. We're not talking like Jessica Klug. We're not talking about decades of years of inhabiting, you know, a, a black presence. Also, Radong Chong still, who was, we find out later, was the other person that would have gotten the scholarship because if they didn't find a black person in the Los Angeles area, they would have expanded it out to, um, the state of California and she was in another city. So she was going to get it, but then he stepped up. She still made a way and was at the college doing her thing. Cause guess what? Black women find a way we do our thing. And so she, she, he actually did not harm her necessarily in the same way. And she got an A at the end of the semester. So that, that level of harm is not there for her. And then the restorative justice that he has to do in his career path as a direct result of this experience has the potential to yield more societal benefit than, you know, what it may have been perceived that he took away for those three months at Harvard. Well, let me let me push back on the restorative justice piece and for a little bit. You know, when we planned out this structure, I got the last word, but I'm gonna let you do that. Do do what you do. (laughs) Restorative justice assumes that like, Ray Don Chong is the person harmed is centered and, and and her needs in particular are centered in that process. That didn't happen here. This was like Mark Watson saying, I know how to make this right. And, and that's not restorative justice. And like, and basically he just, he gives her a check. Did you get the check? All right, cool. We're good. That's, that's not restorative justice. Look, hey. And, and look, what, what did it take for her? As pro, as pro reparations, I'll take a check. Let's start yes. there. No, no doubt, but I think shouldn't so she have been? Check. No, but I'm saying shouldn't she have been part of the conversation to say how much exactly that check should be? I feel like she should. No, have been it part. should have been the amount that what the scholarship was. That's what she lo- like. Well, how is it going to be like? This scholarship was for that wasn't the, the only harm. For think- twenty five thousand. Well, and he cuts her a check for you're you're saying that she had. $50,000 worth of damages and he should have asked her? Is that what you're arguing? She, she moved now? She moved to Boston. Now, what they don't explain in the film, but I, I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering if did her grandparents move out there to support with like the childcare? See, now you're I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> you add fucking And she worked, she worked a low wage job in a cafeteria so to make ends meet. Like there are things that she has to do that she wouldn't have had to do had she had the scholarship. Maybe, but I feel like you're adding a lot of like if we're just if we're just doing a line by line read of what happened in the plot, I feel like you're adding a whole bunch of stuff that a whole bunch of maybes that were not fair. But you but you said it's restorative justice. I'm saying what he did at the end okay. is not restorative. And then justice. and then in the end, she also was like, 
I also want to go back to your point, your last point about the, you know, him knocking out the people. So I think one of the things that struck me, so the end of the movie, so one persistent storyline throughout the movie is that there's these two white guys and they're kind of the most obvious form of racism. They're like, I think, supposed to be Republicans, probably. And so they're constantly making these jokes about Black people, like, um, and, you know, what Black people do. And then when they see Mark Watson as a Black man, they're like, oh, hey, no offense, right? And then he has to decide whether or not he's going to say something to them. And the end of the movie, Radong Chong and her son are, like, leaving the cafeteria, and these two white guys come in, and they make a joke about test tube babies. And then I see Mark Watson, who's back to his white self. And he knocks them out in a, let's say, unrealistic way. But he did that. And I actually think, to me, this is also a really important point, again, about what it means and doesn't mean to be a white ally. Because I do think for white people, sometimes they convince themselves that allyship is stepping back. And to me, I think allyship is actually stepping forward, actually being willing to not leave the onus on Black people to 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 not crazy white people out, but for you to be willing to do that yourself. And so her seeing that, her seeing that this white man is going to like ride for me the way my father would, the way my, you know, other Black men in my life would, is actually, I think, part of why she does forgive him slash move forward and so she did get we're probably gonna have to bleep this out restorative justice dick in the end which i think was fine i don't even know what to say to that (laughs) (laughs) all right quasi um you've heard us go back and forth now where 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 are you coming down on this what are your thoughts feel free the floor is yours Oh, wow. Okay, okay. Uh, Y'all want to hear the scores of how I went through things? (laughs) For sure. Uh, Brandy, I'll start with you. You know, definitely a five on creativity, for sure. (laughs) You you definitely... On a scale of one to five, right? On a a scale of one to five, definitely a five. Uh, You reached... (laughs) As as you would say, you reach for the stars on this one. The restorative justice one. Ooh, that was a big reach. <laughs> I I would say energy. I'll give you a four. Um, you delivered very well. And then receding, breaking down blackface uh, and pulling up some clips. That was that was definitely great. Uh, learned a lot around that. I will give you a four on that. You, I felt like you missed a couple of receipts. I'll, I'll come back to it. And then viability, I'm going to give you a three. <laughs> but I will give you, you really did come hard on the rebuttal. You you really ripped, ripped the threads around the white dog. You you touched it because no one, because white dog is not as famous as soul man, it won't get as much like play. But really ripping the threads to Nightmare on Elm Street, Aliens, and like Robocop. Although they were really good on arguments still, Stephen. I, I would give you that though um as someone as a deep thinker looks at look, look at robocop in many different ways uh i appreciate that analysis 
Steven, definitely a five. I really love on the creativity. Really love what you what you said around uh, Nightmare on Street. Like, of course, the OCP, like capitalism, that, that, that is there. Energy, definitely a four. You, you, you brought it. <laughs> you, brought, you matched her energy. Receipts, I really want to acknowledge the white dog. Um, that was a good deep dive and brought up a good conversation. Viability, or and rebuttal, you got a little weak. You, you, um, although you came, you came back and like, listen, that restorative justice is bullshit. <laughs> I wanted you to come a little bit harder, Brandy. Going back to the receipts and uh, viability, when you talk about blackface and talking about movies, I felt like you missed a big, big, big one here. So we just go ignore Robert Downing and Tropic Thunder. Right. You know, I thought about I thought about bringing that because I actually do think that's a more aggressive form of blackface. That is actually and this is when people say, oh, Soul Man could never be made today. I'm like, how sway? Because we got a lot of examples of that it's still going on. <laughs> to this day. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then in particular, like um, l- looking at that in terms of like viability, yes, it, it's happening t- to this day. And it's done in a comedy format, right? This is a com. This is a comedy movie. Why is blackface happening? Tang pills. The whole like the whiteness of this movie really came through when you had the because UCLA. it was made by a white woman. I mean, it's a white woman. hundred percent. I get it. It's the eighties. I get it. But like the fact that you kind of the ignore black folks in the 80s, what they're going through in the communities, crack. There's a whole crack epidemic, right? So, yes. like, people are hitting hard t- hard times, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, um, where her father's letter hits even harder when you coming from th- that aspect, right? Like, literally, shit's fucked up where, where I'm at, right? You're the hope, <laughs> right? Of, like, and I'm sending this letter, and then it's the quote from his parents that hits hard, um, from her grandparents. I'm sure Mark Peoples are proud about you. God damn. And that's when Mark started realizing that, oh, maybe what I'm doing is wrong, <laughs> Right? I feel, so you're making my case for me by adding. I, I I hear you, but like th- this is like to me when I when I started, I was like, this is when you realized you're being fucked up. <laughs> he's a rich kid from LA that had probably never met a black person up until he saw Radong Chong. It's gonna, and I think that's the point that most white people, even ones that are hashtag resist or whatever, will never have intimate engagements with black people and and not only not even have the those intimate engagements they will never know even in ounce of what it looks like and feels like and tastes like to be treated a certain way in the society which i think is the whole point of the movie like you will never know you can try to we could try to be better we could all try to be better and we are all are obligated to be better but don't sit up here and think you know don't think that this white boy from la whose millionaire father decided he's gonna you know put his money towards a timeshare in his tuition instead of his tuition knows a damn thing at the end of the day about what it means to be a black person that has weighted on your shoulder all of the like struggle of having to succeed despite all the odds set up against you mm. now 
if you like this is this this movie was like all about white privilege right and like how he just like the james earl like james earl Jones character who probably still doesn't have tenure if we if if cornell west is in the indication <laughs> I'm gonna say like, don't you know like his ass about to get fired after like one he's running this committee and like people have got expelled fired for for way worse, right? How he preps him like he invites him to come on this committee and all of a sudden he just gets a slap on the hand. I was like, hold up now, you get to stay at Harvard, <laughs> and like you realize his punishment was going to work at the dining hall. That was like Loki, the oh, I gotta get a job. And my dad and his feline tracksuits are making me do a 25% interest. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Oh my God. And then, like, he just, first off, that skinny ass white boy knocks out clearly those two racist dudes, right? The law students, right? And just knocks them out into tables, right? Obviously, he gets fired. He gets fired. He So he, he did... That was probably, like, the most... Like, if you really want to, like, all right, yeah, you hit somebody, you're going to get fired. But also, like, expelled from school. <laughs> like, we... I understand we're going to spend a lot of disbelief in this movie, but it was... A- and that's the most believable part about it. He's He did all that stuff, but he's still a white man. So guess what? <laughs> <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> He's still like, here. You, you know, but it's, this this movie also kind of like puts in like 1986 and the of Like this is definitely maybe like an inside outside conversations for you. The uh, analysis that was given at the d- d- dining table, Brandy, that was beautiful. I'll I'll, I'll give you that. Um, and I'll, I have no problem. I laughed so hard during that section. It's like, oh wow, this is literally how white folks looked at us uh, as, as black folks in, in, in the area. I was like, oh, wow. It's, it, it was spot on um, in, uh, on that analysis. And I, I really love that. But like the Kareem, when he, I mean, I'm just going to know that he created the whole, it was blackface on top of blackface when he went with the Kareem character, right? He could have easily just kept walking. Mark, Mark, Mark Wasserkin just kept walking. We got in, in front of by Julia Lewis uh, Dreyfus, right? Could have just kept walking, but no. He purposely, for the comedy, was like, you know what? Let me go ahead and do this blind Stephen <laughs> like, uh, put the glasses on, can't hear, do like some fake sign language and keep it moving. <laughs> like, that was like, okay, was that needed? <laughs> <laughs> like what value add did I get uh, in terms of like okay is this really a thing Leon character the aka Barack Obama uh, this is the basketball the other black male character in this that like, actually played good in basketball right um, one I felt like this is Leon's moment to shine they, that's that's why they literally um, had that scene to show like, oh wow, this is how real black men can play basketball, right? And then, <laughs> I, well, I'll argue that I think Leon, the Barack Obama character, is actually showing how perfect black 
people have to be perceived as to make it. So it's like, not only do you have to be this straight A Harvard student, you have to play basketball well, you have to dress well, you have to like do all of these things. Would you know, I think we've all felt that pressure of having to be the kind of like model representative of our community that can do everything well. So I actually found that to be really interesting. And and Barack Obama plays basketball well, too, which is why I think that they saw him <laughs> on campus <laughs> playing basketball and was like, and created uh, Leon based on Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, I, I agree. Maybe on that, that end, but like, what really gets me the point you missed, especially with the the dudes who just keep going with the racist jokes. If you notice, Mark starts off with like, oh, that's a little off. And then like he kind of grows in disappointment after maybe the, the second time. And then it's a time at the library. He gives him a really mean look like, oh, right. And that's it. Like, right. Like, OK, that's it. <laughs> that was like whiteness on display like he didn't have to do shit right just looked at it like oh okay and then as a black was like well that's not how this would go <laughs> right in Harvard law like either like he probably had a conversation with the black law student association right like yo can you believe these white boys like this is a thing um, and I felt like that right there was like, I get what they're trying to do, like, hey, and it built up at the end, right? Like, oh, yeah, he, he, he said that joke that took him over line because he only cared because that test two baby r- remark, right? Oh, you're talking about literally her, the woman I love, right? Now I'm going to fight and defend, defend your honor. That's because it became personal, right? That was whiteness, like, oh, I know a black person, Right before it was just generalization. It's like ah, he's not really talking about black folks. But when he made the test to baby remark and like w- with her kid, he was able to make it became very close. Oh, now it's personal. This is the same energy of like when men do like that. That was my sister, my daughter. Like that. Like it's that same energy. <laughs> so it was really whiteness. Whiteness and white privilege on display there. I understand it's the 80s, <laughs> but like, yo, <laughs> that did not hold well. <laughs> it got even worse throughout the time. So I'll, I'll just leave that there. But yeah, and just like, this was definitely like, can't catch a cab racism, right? Uh, like showing the levels of like of like blackface, yeah, they're not really like the famous Chris Rock joke. Like you know, they're not really hopping on your back to catch a cab as a black man, right? But like this is definitely like eighties mm, mm, racism, white privilege, and then you got to ask yourself, why was this movie made? Does this really like uh, as a comedy? To laugh at like the struggle of like, oh yeah, I get it. You're black, you know, black man kind of supposed to go to Harvard and the hardships. Uh, but so what? So okay, okay. 
I got you. So who won? <laughs> um, I'm going to have to go with Steven because just of the... No, crazy. <laughs> oh, crazy. I promise you, you are not invited back to the, on everything. I put it on everything. You will never be invited I'm, back to this guest as a podcast. You will not be a guest on this podcast. I just can't ignore that white privilege. <laughs> That's the whole point. That's the whole point. That is literally the whole point of the movie. It is not made for black people. It is made it's for not. white people. Clearly. It is made for white people. It is a white movie I mean, for white what, people. What, most movies in the 80s like that, though, like made for white people, but like to make that attention. Well, options. most movies that were made for white people in the 80s come at the expense of people of color. Like that's how you get the like to me, if we're sitting here and we're having a conversation about Teen Wolf. That is a classic example of like a white movie being made at that time that is like, you know, dehumanizing black people for a laugh. To me, this is to me more you showing the ridiculousness of white people in this world where all the, the black people are like these like admittedly one-dimensional because I, I don't know that they added a whole lot of depth to the Black characters that they introduced. But for all intents and purposes, they are successful Black people existing in society. And the white people having these like various types of reactions to them is what the movie is actually about. I just, I just think I wonder if it lands for that white audience because I think if it is in fact intended for white people, are they are they picking up on the progressive elements that you've pointed out throughout the film or are they simply looking at the film through their own through their own lens through their own bias in which case like i think the things that would stand out in that context to me are like the places where the film does veer off into like flirts with with like very stereotypical depictions i i wonder if that is just like Oh yeah, it just reaffirms like a lot of the the things I already think. And isn't that funny? Like, isn't it funny? Yes, Prince. Yes, like, yes, the savagery of like with the with with the mother and the dinner scene. Like, I, I it, to me, it's like this Chappelle show thing. Like, mm -hmm. at a certain point, jokes that were constructed for a particular audience were being received and landed on in an audience that wasn't intended, and the meaning changed because of it. And I, and I wonder here, like, the things that you're saying are the meaningful parts. Do they land with the intended audience that you think this film is for? Normally, I do not concede points. I go down with the ship. However, I will say that I will admit that in looking at some of the reviews. So, so Soul Man has had a little bit of a it's I don't know if Soul Man is necessarily a cult classic film, but I think it does have sort of elements of being a cult classic. And when you go on places like Amazon and you see some of the reviews, they are, I think, a little bit trouble. Like, it is an indicator of some of what you're saying is right. Like, I think that people use the fact that Soul Man has kind of disappeared. Like, you can finally rent it on Amazon, but I think for a long time you couldn't even rent it on Prime Video. Like, it's, it's almost like, in my opinion, white, white liberals had a discomfort with it and just sort of swept it away, almost like it didn't exist. But now you see a little bit of this resurgence. And when you look at some of the reviews, it is like more about, quote unquote, PC culture, which PC culture is usually used as a code for 
why can't we just run around in our clan hoods like we used to back in the good old days? So I, I do concede your point that there is, I think because of, of, of how it was hidden away, there's a little bit of it going over people's heads as a direct result of that. But I do think if you took the movie itself and we actually had a critical discussion and, and again, also to go not to keep beating a dead horse and I know we have to wrap up soon, but on the black facing to me, I feel like we're in a point in society now where everything is put on the same level and we're not able to have a conversation about systemic harms in a meaningful way because everything is just swept into the same category when it comes to things like this. So if we if we say as a society, in my opinion, that this movie Soul Man is the exact same as that clip that I played at the top of, um, you know, that guy, you know, talking about uh, black people, you know, uh, any chicken that follows me, I'll shoot them and and all of that. If we say that those are the both the same and both have to be swept out of society without any conversation, then I really do worry about what that breeds in terms of an inability for us to have any like full robust conversation of what systemic racism looks like in our society, about what dehumanization looks like in our society, about the various ways that racism works in our society in ways that we do not acknowledge in the mainstream media landscape. And to me, that almost provides cover for a certain type of like white liberalism that we see playing out in this movie that is still playing out today when people have conversations about Barack Obama and other folks. And so that's, that would be my worry about linking those things together without divorcing the two. But I certainly do think that whenever you go hard on satire or ridiculousness, there's the same way that if something's too nuanced to make over people's heads, there's also the case to be made that when something is so over the top, it, it goes over people's heads anyway. And I guess that just gets back to the fundamental point that everybody in society is stupid. Quasi, thank you for, you know, coming on. You're not invited back. So like in these last couple of minutes, do you want to shout out your social media? Like where can people find you? Where can people see what's going on with you? For sure. Uh, <laughs> you can find me on the Twitters uh, at KwaiCC, K-W-E-S-I-C, or on Instagram. That'd be the best way to get a hold of me right now. Thank you, Kwesi. I look forward to, to having you back. You're done. You're done. <laughs> your, your career on receipts needed it was short-lived. But... <laughs> well... <laughs> yes and yes i'm a sore loser Fair i'm enough. gonna do this every episode i lose i'm not gonna take it well i do not take losses as well that wraps it up for this episode of bring receipts thank you to our special guest kwesi chapin if you like what you heard go ahead and subscribe on your favorite platform and tune in next time where I will argue why Sylvester Stallone deserved to win an Oscar for his performance in Rambo First Blood. Until then, hold on to your receipts.